Christian here. I mean, that's cool. We're glad you're here. But we, you know, Christians, they use language sometimes and like, like code. It's like it doesn't mean what we're saying. We have this, this phrase, servant's heart. You ever hear that phrase, servant's heart? I hear that all the time. Tim, you got a servant's heart, dude. You have got a servant's heart. See, I hate it when somebody says I got a servant's heart. It means they want me to start stacking chairs. You know. Servant's heart means you're a pushover and a loser. That's what servant's heart means. Tim, you got a servant's heart. So's your mama. You know what I'm talking about? No. You got a servant. No. Bring it. Bring it. Go time, pal. I love the way people talk about their church. It's like a code. You know, it's another code. If you hear someone say about a place, I love it there. I love the music there. Well, that means the preaching stinks. That's what that means. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. They say, I love the music. What? I love the preaching. That means the music stinks. You hear somebody say about a place, I love it there. No one judges me. And I can be who I want to be. You're at a bar. <laughs> That's where you are. <laughs> keeping it real, folks. Keeping it real. Serving is scary. Because if you get caught serving, you get caught having a servant's heart, somebody is going to start asking you to stack chairs, right? And so that's why we got to hide it. That's why it's scary. But it doesn't have to be scary. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Um, but the, the, the fact is, we are genuinely afraid that somebody might start asking us to stack chairs or, or do the lowest job or, or, or maybe just a job that, that's not low, that's not, there's nothing wrong with it, it's just not you. Like for me, that's taking care of preschoolers. I love preschoolers. Like, like Jason Srivastava is one of my best friends, but like, but like if I'm the main caregiver, I have like a five-minute max. Like, once we get into the sixth minute, like, my blood pressure starts to rise, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do, bro. I thought I was energetic until I met you, right? But, but so, so whatever it is, there's this point where, where serving becomes scary. And, and, and if somebody says, you got a servant's heart, you, you want to say, like, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm just here for the great coffee and, and the cool worship music. Uh, in an entertainment, entertaining sermon. Just leave me off the volunteer roster, okay? I was talking to a friend this week about this, this situation where, where when somebody says you have a servant's heart, you, you better be careful. He said, he said, I got it, I got it. If somebody says you have a servant's heart, all you gotta say is this, well, not as much as you, <laughs> right? And just, just put it right back on him. Well, I guess admitting our fear of, of serving is, is maybe half the battle, Right? And, and we're not the only ones. I want to take a look at a passage of Scripture from Mark chapter 10 where, that really reveals this thing in us where our pride and our ambition goes against our, our fear of serving. So we're, we're in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Uh, and and uh, this, uh, no, to introduce this, this is Jesus' second prediction. He has three predictions of his death and resurrection, and this is the second one. Okay? So, and, and that's not the main point of this passage, but it's important to set it up. So, starting in verse 32, they were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was, was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. 
Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. So, so Jesus is telling the 12 disciples, and, and maybe a bunch more disciples along with them, exactly how he's going to be betrayed, crucified, and resurrected. So, so how do you think they responded? Think they offered concern, compassion, maybe, maybe like, maybe, I mean, they've already, they've already learned from, from Peter not to say, oh no, Jesus, let's not let, let that happen. But, but do you think that they are going to offer concern in this moment? Let's watch. Verse 35, then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him, teacher, we want you to do a favor for us. And you can almost hear Jesus, really? I've just been talking about the crucifixion. But sure, what do you want, guys? What's your request? They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. We, uh, one on your right and one on the left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to, be, to drink from the bitter cup, from my bitter cup, and be baptized with my baptism of suffering? Um, are you able... Uh, oh, I, I skipped ahead. They said, yes, we're able. And he said... You will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have the right to say, I, I have no right to say who will sit on my right or left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Jesus is talking about all he is about to give. And the disciples are coming with a shopping list of all they want to get. They foresee themselves as the elite of the elite. When Jesus finally comes into his own, finally comes into his kingdom, they're going to be the elite of the elite, ruling over others in an earthly empire. They want to replace the self-serving, oppressive power structure of the Romans with their own self-serving, oppressive power structure. They don't understand that to share in Jesus' kingdom, you have to share in his suffering. Here's the thing. They want all the benefits of the cross without following the way of the cross. Continuing on. When the other ten disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Not because they are frustrated with the guys, but they're mad that James and John beat them to the punch, right? And maybe whoever asks first is more likely to get it. So Jesus called them all together and said, you know, how, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over other people. The officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is not telling them to, to not want greatness. He's redefining greatness. That, that greatness is found in taking the role of the servant. And, and, and he's telling them that, that suffering defines who he is and it defines those who follow him. And, and, and serving is a much smaller ask than suffering. Well, that's our problem today, isn't it? We have to admit that the influence of the gospel has not eliminated pride or, or ambition or self-interest from our midst. The most important thing that we have failed to emphasize in the modern church, in, in this modern era, is the cruciform life. The life that says, I'm willing to take in suffering. 
if that's the cost of obedience to God, or if that's the cost of love of my neighbor, I'm willing to suffer. Instead, we'd rather hear a story of how God has offered us, God has conquered every problem, he's conquered every sin, which is true, and that, and that the right and proper life with God is a life that has no problems, that has no suffering. And in fact, if you're going through that right now, let's just pray a quick prayer so that God can take care of that and we can get back to the perfect life. We don't want to have anything to do with a life that involves bearing a cross. It's, it's kind of like wanting marriage and wanting all the, all the benefits, the, the, the fun and the companionship and, and the partnership, and, and, and thinking that, that that's what marriage is all about, and misunderstanding that marriage also includes all the, all the other stuff, all the, the bad habits, the weird habits, and, and the morning breath, and, and the bedhead. What I'm trying to say, y'all, is you really need to be praying for goodness, putting up with me. Because, because she, her, her hair always looks like that. Like when she rolls out of bed, that's what it looks like. When my hair rolls out, when I roll out of bed, it's like the light socket thing. And so, so he, we, we, if we want all the good stuff and none of the challenge, we're misunderstanding the whole package. We're misunderstanding the whole story. The fact is, to follow Jesus does mean to experience the benefits the provision, the peace, the purpose, the healing, and the wholeness, and the health. And it is no fine print. Hear me on this. It is no fine print that following Jesus is to also walk a path of service, of, of voluntary littleness, of submission and sacrifice, and even suffering. One of our key values here at the Life Church is live to serve. And when Pastor Lane uh, came up with this idea that we were going to spend a week on each of these, he let Pastor Kevin and I choose which one. Uh, well, he, he made us think that we were getting to choose. And we, and we got the ones we wanted because it happened to be what he wanted for us. So that's what submission looks like. Um, and, and, and I wanted to, to tackle this idea of serving because I find that, that service is so transformative for us. If we can do service to the people around us in just the right way, it was just the right attitude, which is elusive, that it can transform us. It can change us, not just because we've obeyed, but it can make us into a different kind of person. So as we explore this idea, I want to offer you one clarification, one caution, and then one clue. The, the clarification is this. Some people think that you need to be humble in order to serve. Let me clarify. Being humble does help you want to serve, but serving can make you humble. You can serve your place, you can serve your way to a place of humility. The, the, the serving itself can be transformative. So don't think, well, I'm just not humble enough. I can't serve. No, you can. And then the humility will come. Um, now, a caution. If we're going to understand and, and practice true service, we have to distinguish it clearly from self-righteous service. Okay? And, and by the way, um, I, I'm leaning very heavily on uh, an author named Richard Foster, who has probably had more influence on me than, than, than anybody I've never met, for sure. Um, and I read this book a long time ago, and it, and it changed me. Uh, and and he, he, call, he talks about service as a spiritual discipline. And so I lean very heavily on, on his thoughts, and, and especially what we're about to look at. So as we contrast this self-righteous service and true service, I, I want us to, to, to look at a few examples of how we can understand the difference. First of all, self-righteous service 
comes out of human effort. Whereas true service flows from a relationship with God. Self-righteous service spends energy calculating how to serve. True service just serves out of divine urgings. God nudges us in a certain direction. Self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. This is a particular problem for us as Westerners. We want to do things bigger, better, faster, smarter. We're impressed with the big deal. Whereas true service, it can't distinguish small service from big service. Self-righteous service requires external rewards and applause. This, is, um, this one hits really home for me. Um, I, I'm always trying to tell, hey, did, did you know, Pastor Kevin, that I did that thing? I just, just want to make sure you knew that. Just, just so that you know that it's done, not because of me, right? Um, but true service is contented in hiddenness. Self-righteous service is highly concerned with results, but true service delights in the service itself. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. Maybe, maybe it wants to serve somebody who is, who is important, who is influential, right? So that maybe if I serve them, I can get something in return, right? Or maybe if I serve this person who's really down and out, who's really the lowest of the low, then I'll look like an even better servant. That's what self-righteous service does. But true service is indiscriminate. It sees all people as equal and in need of our service. Self-righteous service needs to feel like it. Needs to, I, I feel like serving today, but today I don't feel like it. I, I'm good. True service serves because there's a need. Self-righteous service is temporary. And true service is a lifestyle. Self-righteous service demands the opportunity to help. But true service is sensitive, listening, patient, just as content to not serve as to serve. Now, here's the clue. Here, it, because when I look at this list, I see myself, I see myself mostly on the left-hand column and every once in a while in the right-hand column. So, so how, do you, how do you transform your heart or allow God to transform your heart so that you can move from the left-hand column to the right-hand column? The clue is a secret. And the secret is secret. Try to do it in secret. The clue there is, is in hiddenness, in hiddenness. Remember in Matthew 6, when, when Jesus in the, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he says, now you do your acts of righteousness in secret. You're, you're, you're giving and you're praying. You do it in secret because if you, and you're fasting also, because if you do it where everybody can see, then you've received your reward. But if you do it in secret, then only your Father in heaven will see, and then your reward will be in heaven. So this is particularly hard for me, and, and, and I'm going to give you an example. So um, some days I work from home, and my wife goes to, goes to work. She, she gets up early and, 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 and gets out the door, and, and, and I get off. I get done at work, and she's still working, and it's a little while before she gets home. And so in that time, I, I do things for her. Like, but, but here's the problem. When she gets home, I'm like, how was your day? Hey, hey guess what? Um, I swept the floor, and I did the dishes, and, and did you know that I cleaned the bathrooms? I just, just want you to know, just, just in case you were curious, just in case you didn't notice, that, that, that's what I did in the little time that I had. Praise me, praise me, praise me, right? So, because I can't do it in hiddenness. And so, when I've been thinking about this this week, and, and I've been studying this, I'm like, oh, man, I, 
this, this, is, this is hitting home really badly. So I'm like, okay, this week I'm going to try to do things that she doesn't notice, right? I'm, I'm going to like, I'm gonna, well, I'm not going to give you an example because then she knows. But, but I'm, I'm going to do this thing and, then she, and she won't know about it. And then I'm going to see if I can get away with it. And so then I will have cultivated the service of doing it in hiddenness, right? And let me tell you what, my flesh strains against service. I would much rather people serve me. How about you? Maybe I'm the only one. Okay. I, I strain against service, but hidden service? Oh, I, my, my flesh screams against that. Okay? If I'm going to do something, everybody better know about it. In fact, let me just put it on Facebook or something, right? Because you, you all need to know that I swept the floor today, okay? And, and I'm, I'm a really good husband. All right, can I get some husband points, all right? So, so th- this, is, this is really hard for me. So since I am such a bad example, oh, by the way, by the way, I, I, will, I will give God a little credit here. As, as the week went on, and I was practicing this every day, seeing what I could do to, to, is I noticed that I stopped wondering if she would notice. Like, like the service became worthwhile in itself, right? And if she noticed, then, then cool. But if she didn't, that was fine too. And then as, as I became less addicted to this praise for, for doing this act of service, I found that I was willing to do acts of service that she was likely to see because I was good either way, if she noticed or if she was excited about it. And so I was, and so now, and I remember this one thing I did, I was like, well, she's certainly going to notice that, and then she didn't. But anyway, it, it's okay. Um, it's fine. It's, it's, I'm not quite as transformed as maybe I had hoped. So, so since I'm such a bad example, and I'm not quite there yet, I want to give you another example. I want to tell you the story of a young woman named Teresa of Lijoux, okay? Anybody here speak French? Am I, am I saying that right? Lijoux, okay? Everybody say Lijoux. Okay, now you can all speak French. Okay, so Teresa of Lijoux. Uh, she was born in 1873. When she was 12 years old, she experienced what she described as a complete conversion. God freed her from her, from her oversensitivity. When she was 14, she prayed for uh, this unrepentant murderer in France named Henri Pranzini. And when he repented right before his, his execution, she was so excited that, that God had heard her prayer. She went on a trip to Rome when she was 14. And she begged Pope Leo XIII to let her become a nun much younger than is normal. And and Pope Leo said, when the time is right. In other words, I'm not granting you, you know, from from the Pope's chair to allow you to become a nun. And she wouldn't get up. She stayed bowed at his chair. Waiting, waiting for this, and the and the the guard had to the guards had to come in and pick her up and remove her from the Pope's presence because she was not going to walk away without being told that she could enter a convent so young. Um, when she was seventeen, she entered the convent at Lijoux as a novice. She took her vows, and 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 other people described her, and they said she accepted criticism in silence, even unjust criticisms. And she smiled at the sisters who were unpleasant to her. She, she, her other sisters were there. Eventually, all of her sisters became nuns. But she, she avoided her own sisters, her own physical sisters, to seek out a nun who had been unkind to her so that Teresa could be extra kind to that nun who had been unkind to her. She lived a hidden life, and she, in fact, wanted to be unknown 
a few, as, she was, as she was getting uh, a little bit older, in her early 20s, uh, she got sick with tuberculosis. And her sisters uh, asked her to share her, her journals and asked her to write down her approach to life because they were so transformed by it. And, and she said, some things that she wrote, she said, I applied myself especially to practice little virtues, not having the facility to perform great ones. She said, love proves itself by its deeds. So how am I to show my love? Great deeds are forbidden to me. The only way I can prove my love is by scattering flowers. And these flowers are every little sacrifice, every glance and word, and the doing of the least actions for love. She said, miss no single opportunity for making some small sacrifice. Here by a smiling look, there by a kindly word, always doing the small thing right and doing it all for love. She said, remember that nothing is small in the eyes of God. Do all that you do in love. When she was 20 years old, she refused promotion to be a full sister. And, and, and not becoming a full sister meant she had to ask permission for everything. Um, she, she didn't have the, the privileges and the freedoms of a full sister. She did that so that she could spend more time with the novices who, who, were, who were below her station so that she could be a better friend and, and a better be more kind to them. She devoted herself, and this is interesting, she devoted herself to pray for missionaries. So she, she had a, a handful of priests that, that she prayed for and corresponded with. On that trip to Rome, she discovered that priests aren't perfect and so that they needed her prayers and so she, she prayed diligently for them and especially missionaries who would carry the gospel to unbelievers. And, and as a result, she, she became uh, missionaries often look to Teresa of Lisieux as somebody that they look up to because of her devotion to mission efforts, even though she never got to be a missionary. And when she was 24, she died of tuberculosis, having had no great impact on the world except the handful of nuns in her convent whom she treated with patience and kindness every day. And, and her, her theology, her approach to living is called the little way. The little way. And, and, and it's, it's been studied and practiced by, by people all over the world. Um, when, she, when she came up um, for, for being sainted, uh, the Pope dispensed with the normal 50-year waiting period for her to be considered uh, for sainthood. So all that to give you an example of somebody who really understood service, who didn't need, didn't need a great platform, didn't need, to, didn't need to cross over to the other side of the world, didn't need to have a big position. In fact, gave up position and title so that she could serve better because she was so empty of the pride and ambition that keeps us from good, right, true, humble service. So uh, I want to I give you a, a few suggestions on how to cultivate this discipline of service. And again, I'm leaning very heavily on Richard Foster. Just a few ideas to think about in your everyday walk because when I first started thinking about this sermon, I was like, okay, so this is great. Just like when I teach Next Steps class, it's all about getting people to find their perfect place of service at our church. That's, this is gonna be the perfect end game. And then the more I studied, I was like, that's not what it's about. <laughs> Right now, now the, the one thing I will say for serving at our church is it's a great place to practice, right? It's it's a great place to, to get to know people and it's a great place to to practice serving, and you get to do it on your own terms. You, like nah, you get to say like me, 
preschoolers, I got to take them a little bit at a time, right? But, but um, um, Sadhana, she has a gift for that that I just marvel at, right? So, I, 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 so you can find your exact spot. But the more I looked at it, it was more about the service that you find in everyday life, the people that you work with, the people you go to school with, the people that you, that you stand behind in the Starbucks line with, right? Who is it that, that needs you to experience these, these little forms of service? So the first one is the service of small things, the service of small things. Richard Foster, who wrote this book, he had a friend who said, hey, my wife had to take the car. Can you take me around town to, to run some errands? Foster was like, okay, fine. This is going to be a wasted day. Let me, at least maybe, let me take a book so that I can at least read a book while I'm waiting for him as he goes on his errands. And so he was reading through the book. It was a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer said, the second service that one should perform for another in a Christian community is that of active helpfulness. This means initially simple assistance in trifling external matters. There is a multitude of these things whenever people live together. Nobody is too good for the smallest service. One who worries about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helpfulness entail is usually taking the importance of his or her own career too seriously. Foster didn't even comment. He just went on to the next paragraph. The second one is the service of guarding the reputation of others. Titus 3.2 says, speak evil of no one. This, would, this includes he, uh, refusing to hear negative talk about someone else. And uh, I didn't ask his permission for this, but the best example, the example that immediately came to my mind was Pastor Kevin. So Pastor Kevin and I have worked for a long time, known him almost 20 years. We worked for uh, a for-profit company for several years, and I would start complaining about an employee. I was like, this one employee, they're not doing their job, they're not, and, and he would just very patiently, he wouldn't, he wouldn't call me out for being a jerk. He wouldn't call me out for being legalistic. He would just start to defend them. Well, you know, actually, they really have a really heavy workload right now, or actually right now, they're really going through a lot in their personal life. He would find a way to defend them. He always found a way to speak good of people when I was being legalistic. All right. Um, the next one is the service of being served. Foster says, it is an act of submission and service to allow others to serve us. It recognizes, this is big, it recognizes their kingdom authority over us. We graciously receive the service rendered, never feeling we must repay it. Those, anyone who out of pride refuses to be served is failing to submit to the divinely appointed leadership in the kingdom of God. If someone is serving you, they have a kingdom authority over you. And for you to let them do that is you accepting their authority over you. The next one is the service of hospitality. First Peter 4 says, practice hospitality ungrudgingly to one another. And the example that came to mind here for this was Pastor Shavank and Ms. Sadana. If you have not been a guest in their home, just stick around. You will be invited. And I hope you like Indian food because it is magnificent. Okay? And, 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 here's, and, and I was thinking about this, and, and here's what's so wonderful about their hospitality. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. I'm not getting permission from anybody on this. Um, <clears throat> here's what's so wonderful about their hospital, hospitality. Somebody once said that, I, I want to get this exactly right. Somebody once said that the test of being a good host is how well the departing guest likes himself or herself. And I thought about that, and I thought, whenever I leave their house, I always like myself better than when I got there. 
That's incredible hosting. The next one is the service of listening. Just Bonhoeffer again says, just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. To listen to others quiets and disciplines the mind to listen to God. Listening is my biggest growth area. I'm, I'm, I'm good at talking, and, and maybe, not, maybe not good at quality, but I'm good at the quantity of talking. And I just saw a very enthusiastic head nod from the other side of the room, so I'm going to go over to this side. Okay. Um, so w- talking a lot means it's, it's harder for me to listen, okay? And when, when I, was, I was living overseas, and there was a guy on my team. His name was Chuck. He was, he was a nurse, a very, a very sweet, sweet guy. And, and we would have these team meetings, and I, I would run the team meetings. And I was like, you know what? I think, I think Chuck maybe has more to say. And this one time, in this one meeting, he, 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 I thought he was finished, and, and it was my nature to just, like, move on to the next thing. And I said, do you have more to say about that, Chuck? And he looks a little surprised because I was inviting somebody else to speak. And he said more, and it was really interesting. And then he, he paused, and I said, is there something else? And he kept talking. And I just paused and looked at him. And then he kept talking. And there's like, there's like eight or nine people in this meeting. And just because I shut up for one second, somebody who otherwise might just keep their mouth shut because, well, Bonet's just going to talk, and then we can move on with our day, instead contributed something probably far more important and more valuable than what I had to say. The, the service of listening. And finally, the service of bearing the burdens of each other. Love is most perfectly fulfilled when we bear the hurts and sufferings of each other, weeping with those who weep. Can we learn to lift the sorrow and pains of others into the strong, tender arms of Jesus so that our burden is lighter? Of course we can, but it takes practice. So rather than dashing out to bear the burdens of the whole world, let us begin more humbly. We can begin in some small corner somewhere and learn. Jesus will be our teacher. I've given you the example of Teresa of Lisieux. I want to give you one more example, somebody maybe you haven't heard of. Her name is Agnes of Skopje. I thought it was Skopje all this time, and I looked it up. It's Skopje. Okay, now you know. Everybody say Skopje. Okay. Skopje is, in, is the capital of North Macedonia, uh, in case you're curious, just north of Greece. So Agnes was born in 1910, just 13 years after Teresa died. And she felt called to a religious life at age 12, and specifically to the mission field. And not least because she was inspired by Teresa of Lisieux and her commitment to praying for missions. And uh, when Agnes was about 19 years old, she moved to Ireland to learn English because where she wanted to go do mission work in India, the language of instruction was English, and she needed to learn English. So she Moved, she moved to Ireland, learned English so that she could start teaching in a Catholic school in India. And while she, she, she became a very successful teacher, in 1944, uh, at age 34 years old, she became the headmistress of the school. And, and she had a, a, pretty, a pretty decent life. Well, the mid-40s were very, very uh, tumultuous and violent uh, in India. Um, there, were, there were riots in Calcutta and... Um, Hindu Muslim violence and, and there was a lot of suffering. And she she started going spending more time outside of the convent and she started seeing the suffering around her. 
in her city. And in 1950, at 40 years old, she formed a, a, what's called a Catholic congregation or like an order called the Missionaries of Charity to minister to the poorest of the poor. That was her mission. And the Missionaries of Charity, by 2012, had over 4,500 nuns, over 600 missions around the world in 133 countries. And she was so inspired to, to do all of this incredible work by Teresa of Lisieux that when, after she finished in Ireland, finished her, her studies in Ireland, and moved to India, when she took her full vows as a nun, as was customary, she took a new name, a, a namesake. And because of Teresa of Lisieux, this young woman who didn't live past 24, who lived this little way of kindness to everyone around her, Agnes couldn't help but do the same kinds of, of, of acts of kindness to all the people around her, starting uh, hospices for the dying, leper houses and orphanages. And so going back to when she, she first took her final vows in her early 20s, she took the name Teresa. And you probably know her better as Mother Teresa, winner of the Nobel Prize. But this incredible life that, that had such incredible impact all traces back to a little girl who followed a little way in her little place. If, if she isn't, if, if Mother Teresa and Teresa of Lisieux are not example enough for us, remember that this is the Jesus way. Service is the path, first to humility and then to greatness. That is the way of Jesus. Jesus did this every day, always inviting the little children to come to him, the Gentiles who he was really not supposed to talk to or, or be near, much less touch. He, he went to and healed with his touch. He healed a 12-year-old girl and a woman with a 12-year-old bleeding problem. He always went to the downcast and the outcast, the least and the last, and the lonely and the lost. And the ultimate example was when, on the night he was betrayed, when they all gathered for the Last Supper, and everybody had been walking through horse and cow poop all day long, and everybody needed their feet washed, and there wasn't anybody who was humble enough to do it, this, this isn't that long after they just got the lecture about being the servant, being the servant to all. And everybody's just going to be there with their dirty feet. And Jesus got up and he took off his outer robe and he picked up a towel and he went and he washed the feet of every one of his disciples. And here's the most gripping part. He even washed the feet of Judas Iscariot and he knew that Judas would betray him that very night. Just in case you think that there's somebody in your life who is just too difficult for you to serve. Remember that Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. And then the next day, he was obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. The risen Christ beckons us to the ministry of the towel. I want to leave you with this. I read a beautiful homily from an Episcopal priest, Michael Marsh. I want to read you a small portion. He said, think of all the feet that pass through our lives in a day, a month, a year, a lifetime. What have we done with those feet? What will we do with them? Maybe we ignore them. Maybe we have stepped on them. Maybe we have received them into our life. So many feet, young, old, tired, lost, angry, hurt. There are all sorts of feet. Feet that have walked through the muck of life. Feet that have trespassed into places they shouldn't have gone. Feet that have stood on holy ground. 
feet that have carried the message of good news, feet that dance to a different beat or walk a different path from ours. Those are the very feet Jesus washed. They are the feet of the world. They are the ones he commands us to wash. There are hurting people all around us. Sometimes our most meaningful witness is when we wrap the towel around our waist and just wash their wounds. The risen Christ beckons us to the ministry of the towel. Such a ministry flowing out of the inner recesses of the heart is life and joy and peace. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we repent of all the times and all the ways and all the days that we have been like James and John, coming to you not to follow in your way, but to see what we can get. Would you forgive us? And would you help us to cultivate this life of service at home first, and then at work and school, and even for those who we have the hardest time serving? Would you change our hearts change our attitude toward serving. Would you let serving change us? We place ourselves before you. We offer ourselves. We offer our lives and ask that you transform us into the image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we prepare to sing our final song? There's going to be prayer partners up here to pray with you. Um, and, and if you don't want to come during the, during the last song, they will stay for a few minutes to pray with you, to agree with you in prayer of, of repentance about what we've heard, or to, if you want to, for the first time, put your faith in the God who loves us like this, or if you want to explore what it means to take the next step in your faith journey, they're here to pray with you. Let's sing.